And now, a special Memorial Day tribute program, The Greatest Generation. Hello and welcome to this special Memorial Day tribute program. I'm Jerry Stewart. This day, Memorial Day, is a special day set aside to remember and to honor those who have gone before us. Those in the generations of time who have pledged their allegiance to our America and then saw that pledge all the way through. To me, there is no other action or commitment in America today that can stand up to giving your life for our nation's cause of freedom. Abraham Lincoln called it the last full measure of devotion. By the way, have you put your flag up yet today? Are you showing that you also pledge your allegiance to our America by flying your flag? It's the great and right thing to do, especially in these days. And it is so very important that we be teaching our children that the right and proper way to honor our nation's flag is not by kneeling to it or standing on it or spitting on it or burning it, but by flying it high and proud. If this is your first time to tune in, you're in for a great treat. 24 years ago, I determined that these stories of America at war would be told by the veterans themselves, those who were there and lived to tell the story to us today. Our first veteran telling his story today is going to give us words of war and his part in World War II. But don't miss what he tells us about life and family and community and love and God. When I first heard his story, he made me laugh. He made me cry. His story moved my heart. His name is Royal Blue. Yep, that's his real name. And I think his name fits him perfectly. And today, Royal is 95 years old, but he's still so very active and vibrant, kind and optimistic, and he loves America with all his heart. And just like so many of us today, he's praying with all his heart that our America will find its way back to the great nation God intends us to be. And now, the story of Royal Blue. Royal Blue was born in 1926 in a small town in Indiana. And not long after he was born, in 1929, the Great Depression hit America. I asked Royal what he remembers about living in that time. My dad was a farmhand. There were five of us as children, and we learned to pitch in and help out and make any kind of money we could because the banks were closed. Yes, we had a very difficult time during the Depression. I've asked myself before, what is it about these people who grew up in that Great Depression era? What was it that made them so very solid even today? Hardworking, unselfish, self-reliant. I asked Royal that question. He was quick to tell me where he got his words and actions. The main thing in my life, Jerry, that I tie into is my godly mother. There's no one that has affected my life and influenced my life as much as my godly mother. She was a very humble, dedicated lady. She was saved when I was a baby in her arms. She told me later when uh, she went to a tent revival meeting and she got saved. 
She said she wanted to go to church, but we were so poor. She didn't have any nice dress. But she said she was going to go anyway because she wanted me and my brother and sisters to be in church. We would pray at the old holy couch. It was holy in two ways, by the way. We were so poor. By faith, she'd pray for others. And she'd say, don't worry. Let's just trust God. So for Royal and his family, things were hard and difficult. But with his mother's prayers and positive thinking, they kept moving. But sometimes, no matter what we do to keep the good things of life moving and going forward, sometimes, no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we pray, trouble still finds us. Our house burned down when I was a boy 14 years old. And I'll never forget, we were staying over in uh, a neighbor's house. And that night, Mom had saved her Bible out of the house. I had a question I wanted to ask her. I said, Mom, our old house roof has leaked for so long, it needed repaired, and God never supplied it for us. And uh, and today, our dirt cleared the ground. What do you say about that, Mom? And I remember she laid her Bible kind of down with her hand on it and and put her head down, and she looked around. My little sister was sitting on the uh, mattress next to me, and she said, Well, Royal, you know, I think God sometimes has to take away what we've got so he can give us what he really wants us to have. And you know the neighbors and everyone pitched in to help build us another little house. It was only about one year later as things began to become a little normal for Royal and his family, and Royal got a job on a large poultry farm, and a terrible accident occurred. At 15, I was working on a poultry farm, and a tractor blew up with me. Fortunately, though his body was seriously burned all over, Royal was able to make his way back to the farmhouse, and someone was there. They were shocked by his terribly burned body, but they carefully loaded him up in one of the vehicles there, and they took Royal to the emergency room at the hospital. Things did not look good. I heard my, the doctors tell my, my mother in the hallway, some neighbors had brought her over, and I was blisters broken out all over me, upper portion of my body. And the doctors had called my mother in, out in the hallway, and he said, no, Mrs. Blue, you have to admit that your boy has only a 50-50 chance of making it. He's in bad shape. Well, I prayed to the Lord. And I made a vow to God when I was running to the house. I said, oh, God, I'm but a boy 15 years of age. If you save my life, I'll let you use it for Uh. your glory. I'll go where you want me to go and do what you want me to do and be what you want me to be. Dear God, if you spare my life. There was nothing to do now but pray and wait. And then, as all watched and waited, the doctor came with a word. The doctor at the foot of the bed looked up to my mother. He said, Mrs. Blue, I think your boy's going to make it. Never forget that. Wow. It was a true miracle. And Blue fully recovered. He went back to school, and all seemed fine. And shortly thereafter, the war broke out, and Blue wanted to go and fight for our country. But he was refused because he was too young. They said, no, you're too close to graduating, plus the fact you're going to be drafted as soon as you're out of school. As soon as I got out of school, I was. And in November, I went in to the Navy. We went to boot camp, and five months after we had been in boot camp, we were in the invasion of Okinawa. They were planning to use the uh, merchant ship and fit them out with guns to 
Japanese had sunk so many of our cargo vessels, and so they decided this. They were going to have to put guns on there for self-defense. After we got through boot camp, this spatial training for what they called the armed guard. We were the armed guard on merchant ships and vessels. Uh, we were farm boys, and well, we were scared, to tell you the truth. You know, just scared to pieces. Yes, they were scared. And then the Battle of Okinawa began. We went in there April the 1st. There were ships all over. You wouldn't believe the multitude of ships. You just It's hard to even explain. First afternoon we got in there. In the morning we got to areas. We had to unload troops as well as cargo. And in the afternoon we heard all these planes. And of course, going above us and a dogfight had gotten going between some of our Marine planes. And a Japanese zero. And uh, they shot it down, and that was kind of scary because it was right close to where we were. That first day was a busy day of war, and then night came. But in war, there is no rest. That first night we were in there, uh, the Japanese came back, and they tried to hit the airfield and ships. That battle for Okinawa started on April the 1st, 1945, and went on for almost three months before the Allies finally took the island. This battle was one of the bloodiest in the Pacific War, claiming the lives of more than 12,000 Americans and 100,000 Japanese in military. In addition, at least 100,000 civilians lost their lives. It was a horrible battle. It's no wonder that our president, Harry Truman, decided to drop this thing called the atomic bomb. Without the dropping of those two atomic bombs, there's no telling how many other hundreds of thousands of lives, perhaps millions, would have lost their lives. And Royal, what happened to Royal Blue? <laughs> We talked for another 30 to 45 minutes of his life after the war, but there's no time here to tell all that he has done in his life. But let me give you a few final words. When the war was over, Royal kept his promise to God. He surrendered to the ministry, and in 1950, Royal attended Bible school. And since that time, he has pastored, built a Christian youth center, helped start a Mercy House for Men, and a Good News Rescue Mission. He had started a radio station in Reading with today over 25 frequencies, reaching out to countless listeners, and he still has a daily feature on his stations. Wow. My thanks to Royal Blue for telling his story today on this Memorial Day. Mr. Blue, you are truly part of our greatest generation. I'm Jerry Stewart. I'm taking a break now, but more stories to follow after these messages. Hello and welcome back to this special Memorial Day tribute program. I'm Jerry Stewart. I've been producing the veteran tribute programs now for over 20 years. I've interviewed so many, all of the branches of service, all the wars, men and women, officers and enlisted. But this next talk is a new plateau for me, the oldest veteran I've ever interviewed in all my years. Her name is Erna Garden, and she is 99 years old. And what's she like? Oh, well, you'll hear in a minute, but I can tell you she's spunky and witty and a great person to talk to. And I hope you enjoy hearing her story 
as much as I enjoyed getting the interview. And now, 99 years young, Erna Garten. Erna was born in Sumterville, Alabama on August the 3rd, 1922. Erna was part of a big, big family, 15 brothers and sisters. Wow. I asked her what it was like growing up. <laughs> I just remember a full house. There were lots of us, and our parents taught us how to work. If it was our job to make the lunches for the week, we were responsible. And the same way if it was your turn to feed the chickens or for my brothers to milk the cows. This is one thing I think is missing in today's world because there aren't many jobs parents can teach their children to do when they're living in apartments and they don't have gardens or animals or anything like that. Ah, the work ethic. God has definitely designed us all to work, to be productive. And I very much agree with her. Plus, working gives us a higher, healthier self-esteem. But from our talk, I could tell that Erna, even as a young girl growing up, she was quite excited with life. She had so much to do in her life. I asked her what her plan was. I don't remember that I made any plans. I think I planned to go to college because I applied to Auburn University and was accepted. So Erna was on her way to the next chapter of her life's book. But then it came, December 7, 1941. I asked Erna where she was when she got the news. I was at school, and I remember all in my dorm sitting and listening to Roosevelt. I've spoken with so many who heard that first news of war on the radio from our president's words. It was a solemn time for so many of the young boys they wanted to join to get into the battle against those who attacked America and killed so many. But for the older folks, to the mothers and fathers, they had a different concern. They had gone through World War I, and they knew that so many who went to war never came back. Oh, the thought of losing a child in war. But Erna wanted to go. And of 1943, I was in the last class of Lady Marines who trained at Hunter College in New York City. And then a whole train brought all of us to New River, North Carolina after our basic training. So what did Erna's job assignment come to be? You'll never guess. I went to Cooks and Bakers School, and after finishing, I went to Cherry Point, North Carolina. Yep. From fixing the lunches for a large family of 15-plus, Erna went forward with the same so important job. Important why? Because without the proper feeding and care, the soldiers, those fighting the battles, do not have the strength to win the war. 
I asked her just how big the base was and how many that she fed. If I remember right, we fed like 2,200 by the time I was in Quantico, Virginia. I was in charge of one section of the cafeteria, and sergeants and privates worked under me. With all of the coming and going of the troops, I asked Erna, just which troops was she feeding, those there coming or those going? And she told me both. She told me that some would be coming back from battle, and they needed special care and attention. Some were getting ready to go into battle. But there was something else in her life, someone else in her life. His name was Ed. I had met Ed at Cherry Point. My girlfriend was dating Ed's buddy, and so this one Friday night, Ed didn't have a date, so Sally asked me if I would date Ed. Well, like so many of the wonderful stories of love that we've heard and watched on movies, even during war, people find love. And Ed and Erna fell in love. It was hard because Ed was a pilot, and he was traveling back and forth across the Pacific, But then Ed asked the big question, would Erna marry him? And she said yes. But there was still a war to be won, a job to be done, and Ed and Erna made a plan. I had promised Ed I would marry him a month after I got discharged. But Ed, he had a different plan. He came back to the States The day World War II was declared over, and we married on November the 25th. As World War II had ended, now Ed and Erna, married, came back home, had two children, and lived out a wonderful life. Sadly, Ed passed away in 2007, but there was something else very special that Erna did. After my kids were grown, I decided to study to be a flower arranger. I had entered fairs because I liked to grow things and I liked the competition. And in 1996, I was awarded the first prize for flower arranging for the National Council of Garden Clubs. Wow, what a wonderful story. What a wonderful life. As we wrapped up our interview, I asked Erna if she had anything else to say, perhaps something to do with the condition of our country right now and the problems that we're facing as a nation. She said this, We can come back. We can be what we were once. I have every hope. Politically, we've got to forget Republicans and Democrats and think of Americans. Amen, Erna. Amen. The greatest generation. My thanks to Erna for our talk today and her wonderful service to our nation. 
Erna, God bless you. I'm Jerry Stewart. I'll be back with more of this special Memorial Day tribute program after these messages. And now we return to The Greatest Generation. Hello and welcome back to this special Veterans Day tribute program. I'm Jerry Stewart. It has been said that nothing good can come from war, nothing but suffering and destruction and death and hate. But can love somehow rise above that hate? Listen to this amazing, almost unbelievable story. Only a few months after the Japanese made their surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, the United States military decided to make their own surprise attack on the heart of Japan, Tokyo. But it would be a very difficult, almost impossible mission. A fleet of 16 Army B-25 bombers headed by Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle would do what had never been attempted before. They would take off these stripped-down bombers packed to the maximum load with bombs from the deck of an aircraft carrier. Reports tell us that Doolittle was brutally honest. There was a good chance they would all be killed. Who would volunteer? One of the volunteers was bombardier Jacob DeShazer. The date was April the 18th, 1942. As the aircraft carrier, the USS Hornet, steamed toward Japan, trying to get as close as possible, they were sighted by the Japanese. Though they were still too far from Japan to have enough fuel to safely return, they had to make a deadly decision. To take off knowing they could not return or to scrub the mission. The command was given. Army pilots man your planes. Jake DeShazer's plane was the 16th. Their mission, an oil storage tank 300 miles south of Tokyo. As enemy shells exploded around them, DeShazer released the bombs and hit a direct hit. Mission accomplished. Now they must make their way to free China and pray that they had enough fuel. But they didn't. After 14 hours in the air, the plane was going down. They had to bail out. I called my pilot and I said, are we in free China or occupied China? He said, I don't know. And uh, we flew around then for a while. But free China or not, that plane was going down. They had to jump. As Jake parachuted into the darkness, he remembers wondering just what would happen. Then he remembers hitting the ground with a terrible jolt. He had landed in a cemetery on the top of a grave, fracturing some ribs. Though he tried to find his way to safety, DeShazer was captured and thus began his three-and-a-half-year imprisonment, most of it in solitary confinement. Of his five-man crew, all were captured. Two of the men were immediately tied to small crosses and executed. Of Jake and the other two kept alive, they were beaten and starved and brutalized. It was a fate perhaps worse than death. We were in prison. It was a place I didn't like to be in. Back in the States, Jake's family had been told that he had been captured and killed by the Japanese. But his godly mother believed different and prayed for him continually. But in his tiny cell, Jake admitted later the only source of strength he had was a bitter hate for his enemy, and that hate only grew. 
But then, miraculously, something happened. For reasons still unknown, the Japanese supplied the POWs with Bibles in English. Starved for something to do, Jake read the Bible over and over. I got a Bible. I studied the Bible, and I I realized that I should believe what the Bible says is God's Word. Then, on June the 8th, 1944, after over two years of brutal torture in prison and a smoldering hate for his enemy that only grew, Jake DeShazer, in that tiny cell, got on his knees and prayed for Christ to come into his heart. And unbelievably, the hate for the Japanese began to melt away. It made me... uh realized the thing to live for was to do what God wanted me to do. Made a big difference in my life. But that's not where the story ends. For another year and a half, Jake and his fellow soldiers remained in prison. And then, on August the 10th, 1945, Jake passed a message to a fellow prisoner. He said, I was praying, and the Lord revealed to me that the war will end today. And that day, the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. Amazing. But even more amazing was what followed. He told his fellow soldier that he knew what he was going to do after the war. God wanted me to go to Japan and be a missionary. Just ten days later, Jake and the others were set free, and Jake went home. And he never forgot God's call. Sadly, on March the 15th, 2008, Jacob DeShazer passed away. And in that same year, Jacob was nominated for the Congressional Gold Medal and the Presidential Medal of Honor, noting his extraordinary impact on America, not just as a war hero, but for his heroic services to the people of Japan, where he is still known today as a hero of peace and reconciliation. A grateful thanks to Jacob DeShazer, one of the greatest in our America's greatest generation. I'm Jerry Stewart. I'll be back with another story after these messages. As we take this short break before we get back to the program, let me ask you this question. With our world and our nation spiraling out of control, what are our children being taught? Are they learning to be good citizens, or are they being taught by the happenings in our America to be unlawful, disrespectful, and to just give up and become dependent on our government? Folks, I believe that this greatest generation is the generation who needs to be heard from and for all of us to learn from. They're the generation who went through the hard times and learned from it, not blaming anyone, but going forward and taking what happened to them and teaching what they learned to their children and grandchildren. Kelly, just how do we go about teaching these ideals in America today? We believe that this teaching is up to each of us. Each of us must be telling the stories of life to their own families, good or bad, so we all know the true past to help us learn what we must do to give ourselves the best chance for a better future. It was philosopher George Santayana who said, Those who refuse to learn from the past are doomed to repeat its mistakes. Wow, Kelly, how true. What do we have for our listeners today? Order today's program, The Greatest Generation, on CD, for only $11.95, plus $6 shipping and handling, for a total of just $17.95. Order right now, and for an additional $6, you'll also receive Jerry's newest CD, Teach the Children Well. 
an all-new CD with 10 good stories teaching the core principles needed for children of any age to learn how to be a great citizen. So call us at 817-995-4607 right now to order today's program on CD. Or you can go online to place your order at www.jerrystewartusa.com. Please call now. Hello and welcome back to this special Memorial Day tribute program. I'm Jerry Stewart. Today we're talking to those who lived and fought during that World War II era. And the more of these interviews and talks I'm honored to hear and pass on to you, the more amazed and impressed I am with this group we call our greatest generation. During that war, it took more than just going off to battle. It took those who were left behind to encourage and support and pray and actually work in the factories to help in our victory. This next story of Ted and Marie Ramber is a perfect picture of just what happened. Ted Ramber and his best girl Marie had plans to marry, but then came the war and Ted had to fight. Soon, Ted was gone with Marie here, left behind with seemingly nothing to do to help in her part to win the war. Or was there more for Marie to do for the cause of freedom? When the war broke out, this came out in college looking for uh, people to be interested in the mechanic for airplanes. Marie had wondered in her heart just what she could do for her part in winning the war, so she answered that call. I took two six-week courses, so I went a little ahead of the rest of them. And they taught us riveting and measuring and how to cut material, the stuff that was made out of the wings, you know. They give us a certificate so we could take it to where they were hiring the people in Boeing. Here she was, just a young girl, early 20s, and Marie left the comfort of her own home place in Montana. She traveled to Seattle, Washington, where they hired her at the Boeing Aircraft Assembly Plant, where they were building B-17 bombers. All this while, Ted and Marie continued to talk by mail, as Ted was getting his final training before being shipped overseas. He was assigned to the 4th Armored Division, 35th Tank Battalion, where he became a tank loader and radio operator. I was in the turret on the left-hand side. I was to load and to, the radio was right behind me and uh, we had our helmets on and we could hear, you know, what was going on. The Army's newest tank was the Sherman tank. I asked Ted what it was like inside that tank. Oh, it was all padded out. Bounced around pretty good in it. Of course, the guns wasn't padded. The 76 millimeter, the breech was sticking out in the turret where you could load. The tanks played a vital part in our winning the war. They would go ahead of the foot soldiers, many times acting as a shield to protect the soldiers. But this made the tank very vulnerable, an easy target, and it was very dangerous. When Ted's division moved out and landed in France, almost immediately he found out just how dangerous this tank job was. It was ready for us. When we came, we landed in Sherbrooke, we got shot at, right? About 10 miles along the edge there. The German army had devised an ingenious plan. They had taken the 88 millimeter guns normally mounted on their tanks and modified their use. They had 88 millimeters 
cemented in the ground and they would come up on hydraulic lifters and they'd fire and down they'd go. You'd have to shoot pretty fast to, you know, to hit them. Ted's tank was right in the front. Fortunately, that worked in his favor. The German guns missed his tank. The big old fireball went over us, happened to shoot over us, just a big whoosh fireball. We got orders to back up, you know, out of range. Ted's tank was safe, they weren't hit. But unfortunately, most of the other tanks weren't so lucky. Whoever was in the way got uh, killed and the rest of them got shrapnel. We lost, I think, seven tanks then and we only had 14. That was our first action. As the terrible fighting continued in Europe, back in our country, hundreds of thousands of girls and women worked in the factories, frantically working to replace all of our planes and tanks and artillery being destroyed in the war. At the factories, they were given no days off. They worked seven days a week. There were no leaves, no excuses, unless there was a death in the family. Marie was there at the B-17 bomber plant working every day. I was assigned to the final assembly, and they put me in the wing section to put the wings together. I asked Marie just what it was like working there. Where I was working, there were mostly women. A lot of rivet noise, you know, it was real loud. But it wasn't only loud, it was dangerous. One lady lost her hand. She had her hand in the wrong place, and it's the one thing I remember. Meanwhile, back in France, Ted and his tank battalion continued to fight the Germans. So far, his tank had not been touched. But then one day, during a battle, it came. I was in the, in the tank and I couldn't see. All I remember is a great big boom, and I hit my head and I bounced around in that tank. We must have really bounced, you know, when it hit the turret. And it hit on the opposite side of the turret from me, so it killed the gunner and the car commander. Ted was somehow still alive, but he was seriously injured. He managed to get out of that exploded tank as other soldiers rushed to his aid. They took me in by all fours and laid me up on the hood of the jeep. And that jeep was already full of cripples, you know guys had got hurt and we took off to the field hospital. Ted had taken a lot of shrapnel, mostly in his leg, but he did survive. In fact, after weeks in the hospital, he did recover and was assigned a new task as a mechanic there in Europe until the war was over. Marie worked at Boeing also until the war was ended. Ted did return home safely and he and Marie were married. What a wonderful story of service and dedication and sacrifice and love. But before I leave this story, just one more word about the great part women played in helping us win World War II. Over the years, our nation has certainly had its ups and downs. There have been times of unbelievable hardship. But each time a hardship arises, the American women have been there to do their great part. Think about it. When the war began, almost immediately, hundreds of thousands of American men were gone. Just who could replace the clerks and cooks and mechanics and factory workers? The answer, of course, was the American women. 
As men went into the armed forces, women took their places in war plants and other jobs crucial to our nation. And by 1943, more than two million women were working in American war factories. And they did a fantastic job. Officials discovered that in 21 key industries, women could perform the duties of eight of every 10 jobs normally done by men. Not only did women support the war cause by working in war industries, they also joined the armed forces as nurses and other positions crucial to America winning the war. Thank God for the dedicated service of the women of America. I'm Jerry Stewart. I'll be back with more of this special Memorial Day tribute program after these messages. Hello and welcome back to this special Memorial Day tribute program. I'm Jerry Stewart. Memorial Day is a special day, a special time set aside to honor and remember those who have served in our U.S. military forces and so many who have given their very lives to keep our America safe and free. As I talk with so many of these World War II veterans, I can understand how they've come to be known as our nation's greatest generation. With each one I've spoken with today and over the years, they carry in their walk so many of the powerful character traits that have made our America great. With each conversation, not one complained of their difficult times. Each spoke of life with an eye on God and hearts open and thankful for His guidance and help and protection. Truly examples for us to follow, especially our young people. But just what about our young people growing up today in our mixed-up America, where it's hard to find the clear way to go and the right models of character to follow? But there's another picture to see if we just look. A few months ago, Kelly and I were at a local movie theater, and we were leaving the movie and noticed that a group of people, maybe 10 people, who were standing in the exit area. They were all ages, the very young, the very old, teenagers, all mixed. They were clearly having a celebration with lots of smiles and laughter and hugs, and we just stood back and enjoyed that wonderful moment of what we all should be doing today. Finally, being the curious person that I am, I approached them, and I just had to ask, what is it, a birthday party, a graduation? What's the celebration? They all looked and smiled and pointed at one of the teenage girls, and as she seemed to blush a little from all the attention, one in the group spoke out. She's joined the military, and she's leaving shortly, so we're having this party Kelly and I looked over at the young girl and I said, wow, what a wonderful thing to be doing. No wonder this group of family and friends are so proud of you. Then I asked her, why had she enlisted? She gave a wonderful answer, one I really needed to hear. She said, America is my country and I want to do my part to serve my country. And Kelly and I just melted from her reply, wow. As we spent the next few minutes joining with the group, we even prayed together. I looked at all of them and said, Thank you, Lord, for showing Kelly and I that there are still people in our America, good and great people, that perhaps we should not be so quick to count America out. There are still so many good, great people here, some so very young, some not even old enough yet to vote. 
but they love our America. Today, this day, as we honor our greatest generation, let us make sure to remember and pray for those serving today, standing as ready shields to protect us, to keep us free. Dear Lord, thank you for your great part in our lives. Please, God, help us to keep the fight for good going. And God, please give us the wisdom and courage to walk in a way to be the light, an example for all that are coming behind us. Well, that's all the program for today. I want to thank you again for joining us. I'm Jerry Stewart saying, see you next time, and God bless America.